The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is John Marshall, author of Wide Open World, How Volunteering Around the World Changed One Family's Lives Forever. Uh, John is a nine-time Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director, and in addition to his work behind the camera, he has been a familiar face on main television for more than 10 years, writing and hosting numerous weekly TV shows. Wide Open World is his first book. In 2010, John Marshall needed a change, and he was feeling disconnected from his wife and his two teenage kids were lost in cyberspace. And in an effort to pull this family back together, John proposed they take a six-month trip around the world. Not the sightseeing hotel restaurant kind of trip, but a volunteer adventure working with service organizations in all kinds of interesting projects. Uh, Welcome to the show, John. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, Catherine, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and I was going to tell you as we were chatting a little bit before we got on the show, but I'm from Maine originally. So, oh, you are? Yes, I am, and uh, I know that's where you're from. Right. Uh, yes, I am, I have an, and have family there, and I go back and forth. Um, so I am a maniac at heart, although now I live in New York, New York State. But anyway, uh, so we do have a lot in common, and I do right. travel a lot, so I'm really interested, obviously, in, in this particular kind of travel. So what kinds of trips did you take? Okay, you're not taking the restaurant or those kinds of trips, kind of those, I call them bragging rights trips, you know, people, right. you know. <laughs> but this is, like, very different, six months of very different kinds of travel. So what kinds of trips did you take? And Sure. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you, you know, I think like a lot of people, Taking a trip around the world was something that we always wanted to do. And when our, our first child was born, my wife and I, we dreamed of taking a trip around the world as a family and thought, how amazing would it be to give that experience to our children? But traveling around the world costs a lot of money. Um, just, you know, plane tickets. And if you, if you stay at hotels and you want to go sightseeing and you want to go out and do anything, eat at restaurants, you can spend a fortune uh, traveling around the world. So years passed. Time passed, and pretty soon our son is 17 years old. He's a junior in high school, and we realize if we're ever going to do this trip, we have to do it now because once he goes to college, it will never happen. So we still couldn't afford it. We just couldn't afford to take a trip like this. And one day I had this idea, really kind of out of the blue, that we should volunteer our way around the world, this idea of Volunteerism is kind of catching on where people add a little bit of service to their vacation um, as a way to give a little something back, but also to get a lot out of it. I mean, some people report their lives are forever altered by a single week of overseas service. So, so what could six months of something like that do? And we got really, really excited about it. We got our kids on board. Our, our daughter was a freshman in high school at the time. And so we went off on a, a six-month volunteer adventure. And what we did, did was... You, I want to go back a little, because how did you prepare for that? I mean, you said, I mean, you did this, what, in 2010? And as you said, right. I mean, certain people were already going for a week, going for two weeks, volunteering at some, you know, in a whatever, it is, you know, some uh, facility in, around the world. But you said, right. okay, so six months. How did you get motivated to do that? I mean, were there any, like someone who's thinking about it, what were some of the, like, fears of, like, uh, the kids, for instance? And you and your wife must have had different kinds of fears than the kids. I mean, Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's always fears. That's the thing. And that I think a lot of people, some people that I tell this idea to say, oh, my gosh, that sounds amazing. I would never do that, but that sounds great. And that there's fears. If you look in the world, the world always looks dangerous, you know, or the world looks like, um, 
there's too many, it, there's diseases or there's terrorists or there's, you know, all these different imagined uh, problems. And no, those are real, but oftentimes what we found was the media or stories, they, they magnify things so that if you watch a, if you watch a story where a house is on fire, too many houses in a row, you might think the whole world is burning. And the truth of it is, it's not. You know, so we found, but we had to overcome those fears. We were motivated to go. I really wanted to bring, my, my wife and I were drifting apart a little bit. I felt our kids were lost, as you mentioned, in, you know, in cyberspace on their phones. I just felt disconnected from my life. I felt like I was hypnotized and I was, years were passing and we were kind of just, we were kind of numbed. And so this idea was something where we were motivated to go. That was one thing. I mean, you have to decide to go. It's, it's never going to be the right time for a trip like this. But if you dream of it, if you really see in your heart that you want to do it, I can say if we can do it, any one of your listeners could do it because we weren't rich and bored. Uh, we but what we didn't have a book traveled, deal before you know, we left home. You know, we just decided to go. Oh, this is, I think this is an important question because were you travelers beforehand? You know, sometimes I see traveling, people do it. It's sort of like, you know, going to school. You take, say, for maybe you travel around the United States and you're talking about people saying, well, you want to go to India, you want to go to, in this case, you went to Thailand, New Zealand, um, and other places. Like, I could never go there because it's too dangerous. But you know how if, if, if you've maybe been to the Grand Canyon, you've traveled around the United States, maybe then you're ready to go to Europe, and then maybe after that you're ready to go to the places you explored. Had you done that, or was it like we've never traveled before, and, hey, we're going to do this volunteerism thing around the world? Yeah, no, we had done some travel. Actually, in 2000, we um, had some personal tragedies in our lives, and we went and lived in a Portuguese fishing village for one year. Now, Europe is very different from um, the third world. Yeah. Um, but still, we did have that experience of spending a year um, overseas and doing some traveling. So we had a bit of, bit of that bug. And we loved to travel. But not really. I mean, I'd never been to these places. This was a first time for me. And, um, but to go off and, and, uh, and volunteer, one really nice thing about this is that so when you show up, in a country, someone typically meets you. So you might have someone meet you at the airport. And then you're instantly connected to a local community, to a local cause, to people that are doing something. And so that you're really taken care of. It's not like you, if you're just a tourist and you travel into India, you step off into Delhi and it's a madhouse. And you have to navigate, you know, what it's usually one o'clock in the morning, it's usually 100 degrees, and you have to figure out where, are the, where am I going? you know, while a hundred men scream to give you a, a taxi ride. But in our case, we were met by the director of the orphanage that we worked at. He was there. He said, come on, the air conditioner's on in the car. He drove us directly to the place. So in many ways, while it is a challenge to go to these places by volunteering, we found that we were kind of taken care of in many ways. Right, so that was, you went to India, you went to Thailand, uh, New Zealand. Um, where else? You went to Buddhist, uh, here, Buddhist monk. You were, uh, worked with Buddhist monks in the Himalayas. Um, yeah, um, the, the, the first place we went to, I mean, went to all those places. Uh, the first place was in Costa Rica as well. We worked at an animal sanctuary in the middle of the rainforest in Costa Rica. And, you know, I found these places, I don't have any, you know, great experience. There are places online where you can work with an organization and they will help you organize your trips. They charge a bit of a fee, um, but we didn't do that. We just, we had a very simple strategy where we would type, the word volunteer, and then the name of the country that we were interested in, and then we'd look around online. And so we found all the places. They all had websites, and we'd deal usually with the founders um, or the people that ran these organizations. And so we'd organize our, our, our trips. And so we found this place in the middle of the rainforest where there's no roads in or out. You have to get there by boat. And it's a, it's a place that rehabilitates injured rainforest animals, but typically, I mean, most uh, spectacularly, they raise orphaned or injured monkeys outside of cages because you can't release a monkey once you throw them in a cage. So the monkeys are all running wild around the place. And when you're there, you're just part of the monkey troop. So that was really, if you want to get away from them, you actually go into a cage, your, your cabin or the kitchen area, and it was a cage where you, there's bars on the windows and the monkeys are on the outside and you go inside to get away. When you go outside, you're just part of the larger monkey troop. you're the one who's living in the cage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it was really an amazing experience. But the monkeys, you know, they, they're very social. So you're part of their troop. 
So when you walk outside, they're climbing all over you. You know, they're, they want to climb up. They want to meet you. They want to see you. And um, so for our kids, you know, to be a part of something like that, which is really, I mean, the greatest thing about this for people who might imagine their own family doing something like this is for our children. I mean, to see my kids stepping up and having to care for an injured animal like like a kinkajou that they've never even heard of, or to teach their own English class in Thailand, or to you know work in the laundry of an orphanage with orphan kids doing 200 people's laundry and doing it happily. You know, it was really, really powerful stuff. Fun stuff for me as a parent to witness, but amazing stuff for them to actually live through and go through and have that formatively change the course of their life and just change them as people. It was really powerful and fun to see. I was going to say that sounds like really powerful, positive stuff. But, you know, I'm a social worker, so I kind of want to dig into, like, what were some of the issues that were difficult? I mean, I have three boys. I've traveled not on volunteer, and they're older now, but uh, and not for that kind of a trip. But I know in every trip that we've ever taken, wherever we've gone, there are always issues. And yeah. so the kids, especially, and I'm picturing the te- your two teenage, your daughter, a freshman in high school, your son, a senior in high school, um, they loved what they were doing. Did they ever, you know, did what about having to... Ad- adapt to it or were they ever resentful that they were there and that you know advice to other parents who might want to do the same thing with their kids because it's i'm i'm sure there must have been issues that came up particularly with the children about yeah and no doubt you know you're 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 right Catherine, because it's like you know we went before we went on this trip our kids were and I say this with all the love and respect I have for these kids, but they're, they're as lazy as any kids. You know, like if you take them out in the yard and want them to rake, if you get five minutes of raking out of them <laughs> you are before they say, father. oh, how much longer do we have to rake? <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be a miracle. But so on the trip, we started our trip in Costa Rica, as I mentioned. Well, they have jobs. I mean, we have to be at work at a certain time. This isn't a vacation, even though it wasn't like slave labor. We had a lot of free time. But they have, they have certain jobs they have to do. They have to fill out feeding logs. They have to be at a certain area at a certain time. And the kids weren't doing it. You know, they were showing up late. They weren't filling out their logs. They were sneaking on the computer in the middle of the day when they weren't supposed to, like they might do at home. But then we got, we got royally just chewed out by the guy who was running the place. Uh-huh. And he said, this is not a vacation. You know, you're here to work, and this is unacceptable. I mean, really just lit into us. And that had a huge impact on the kids. I think they were embarrassed. And it also, but the next day, they got up, and they were to work on time. And they filled out their logs, and they offered to do extra work. And it changed from that point on. I mean, after Costa Rica, we went to New Zealand, and we worked on organic farms. There's a big movement all over the world called woofing. That stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And um, you can go and work for free on farms in exchange for a few hours of work each day. They give you room and board. And so the kids, you know, there's times where Logan and I, my son, we'd be chopping wood. Well, I can count on, you know, one hand how many minutes he and I have, have chopped wood together. But here we are for five hours chopping wood and, and, and he was doing it because I think because it was just part of the deal, um, that they would just work. Now, that said, there was homesickness. There were times where they just wanted to be with their friends. They wanted their own bed. We were sharing the same room, you know, often, where the four of us would be in the same room. Um, so there, was, there were definitely challenges out there on the road and times where they thought, I wish I were home for the school play, or I just want to eat, you know, here we're out at these amazing places, and they really just want to go home and eat at the local pizza place. Yeah, so how do you handle it? I mean, I know, obviously, each the different situations came up, but general advice to, to parents, for instance, who are, as I said, maybe contemplating doing what you did. What would you say? How did you handle it? So that they weren't resentful, you know, that they were, hey, this is your opportunity, it's short, right. well, you know, yeah. I would say, well, one thing I'd get their buy-in on this. I mean, we couldn't force it on them. We didn't force it on them. We didn't say, we're doing it, and that's it. We, we got their buy-in. So they finally said, we'd let them um, have some input in where we were going um, to choose places that they were interested to going to, you know, to go to. And, um, and then also to, to give them, I found, you know, I think oftentimes we think of our teenagers as not capable like, oh, you know, people look at teen kids today and think, oh, you know, 
that he's not capable of of uh, of of doing too much. But then, you know, for example, we were in Thailand, so we were going to teach English in Thailand. There's a program in um, in the states. It's called Volunteer. You don't have to be an English teacher. You don't have to have an ESL degree. They take uh, native English speakers and put them in very rural parts of Thailand that don't get any visitors and then have them teach English with a little bit of training on their part because otherwise no one would go to these parts because a lot of people go because they like to see the sites around, but there's no sites in these certain areas. So we got to go to Thailand and teach English, but our kids, 14 years old and 17 year old, uh, 17 years old, taught their own classes. So at 14 years old, there's my daughter standing in front of a group of K or K through 12 year old kids, um, three classes a day, uh, five days a week, um, teaching a class. And that they're so capable. Once they realize too, you know, how, how capable they are, they seem to really rise and enjoy the, that, that instead of just being served you know, at home where you serve them their food and clean up their rooms and treat them like they're helpless. On the road, they were the ones taking care of themselves. Yeah. And they well, were know, the I ones stepping up. I think we tend to here in the United States, but we infantilize our kids, whether they're, you know, even yeah. when they're younger and in high school. Like our expectations for them are pretty slim, and we're always patrolling and policing and, you know, worried about what they're going to do. And, it's, you know, as you're describing it, you know, if you give them the opportunity, hey, they can do it. They can teach. And, you know, you're talking about Thailand. I was really interested in that because we just got back from Thailand, but oh. we took not volunteering, kind of maybe one of the sightseeing trips that you're talking about, but it was my boyfriend and I, and it was really, because Thailand is a, uh, and Thailand's very different, for instance, you mentioned Costa Rica, uh, that's, you know, that's closer to the United States, it's right. more similar in terms of, uh, you know, North American, South American culture and attitude, but Thailand's very different, and especially, where were you in Thailand? I mean, you were really out in the, in the countryside, or? Yeah, in the country, I mean, typically, a lot of people go to uh, Chiang Mai in the north, mm-hmm. or they go to Phuket in the south. Yep. But there's a big open space in the middle. Right in the dead old center, there's a place called Nongka. Mm-hmm. It's just a tiny little nothing of a town. You'd drive through it in just a few seconds if you were going fast. But it has a school and has a village, and we lived in a, with a local homestay family that was set up by Voluntai, by the, by the organization. And then we'd walk to school each day. It was about you know three-quarters of a mile down the road. I mean, one day it was 125 degrees, and we walked very slowly to school. Um, but, you know, that, that was our thing. We would work. Uh, all of us, all four of us would walk to school together. We would all teach. We worked in different combinations of two. And then we'd come home, and we'd spend the day. We'd explore the local area. We made friends locally, and we lived like people in a community. Rather than tourists uh, watching, snapping pictures of sites and, and going along with other tourists, we just lived in a community as part of local people. And, you know, we were a standout because we're the only Westerners um, – that were in the town, but you know, it was still kind of exciting for people to see a Western person. And so especially our kids, uh, I mean, we had people show up, girls show up from a neighboring village because they heard that our son Logan was in town and wanted to come get his autograph and take a picture with him. And, and for a 17-year-old kid, that's really powerful stuff. I'm yeah, telling you. that's a real high, right? Yeah, super, yeah. super high. What were your what were the, your children and it's, they were such a good to me a good age anyway for doing all of this being in high school because um, what was their reaction and I know my reaction as an adult but the extreme extreme poverty and when you talk about poverty in Thailand I think on some level it's very different than the poverty that we have here um, you know people at least my experience with a lot of the people living on the canals and the boat people and living in with no medical care etc I mean how did your children react to that like other children their age for instance who lived in the village I mean like their experience as Americans obviously juxtaposed with what they were seeing and experiencing in, yeah. um, in this village must I mean is something obviously you must have it must have really affected them, and I just wonder how. Yeah. No, it's a life-changing thing. And that's yeah. the thing. I think people, um, before you travel, people have expectations and stereotypes about the world. You know, they, they think of poverty, and they have a certain thought about the world. That, uh, it's almost like a faceless mass, you know, of poverty. But when you meet the faceless mass, when you meet the individuals that make it up um, and get to love them, and get to get to meet them as people, um, it's a completely different thing because 
the, the compassion that can grow from actually meeting the world. In fact, I said to someone the other day, before you fall in love with the world, you need to meet it first. You need to, you know, you need to go and see it. And so, but when you meet people, like you say, in the Thai village who are, who are more generous and welcoming, you know, just generous with nothing um, towards us, but also in India. You know, India is an, an incredible uh, place, but we lived at an orphanage in India. And when you live with orphans who are filled with joy, who have, who have come through the, the, some of the worst beginnings, but for some reason are pouring their love into me and my family much more than we're giving to them, um, that is a transformational thing. And it, for my own kids, it's completely changed the people that they are. Um, my, my daughter is studying to be a doctor now and is interested in working in developing countries. My son has spent most of last year, um, took some time off from college, and was volunteering and learning Spanish all through South America. And, and they both have big hearts now for this sort of thing. And, and you know, I've got to say, personally, you know, I've started a, a nonprofit to work with orphan projects worldwide and have just launched a big campaign on Indiegogo uh, called Orphan School. If you check out Orphan School, it's one of the top-rated campaigns on the site, but to expand the orphanage school at the place we lived at in the book. So this isn't something we kind of breezed in and the world doesn't just kind of lightly touch you when you do this kind of work. I really believe that it can dramatically change not only the people you are, but the course of your entire life if you, if you let it, if you go in with an open heart to, to, to see what it, what it has to offer. I would think, but even the way you're describing it, John, even if you don't let it, even if you go in not with an open heart, it has to be a game changer. I mean, if you're going to, if you pick it out, let's say you go for six months as you did or even longer for a year, it is a game changer. And once you do that, you can't go back. I think that's something, you know, and, and I'm saying that in a good way, but there's a lot of other stuff that it really changes you. And um, I guess sometimes you probably not always, will not always, maybe really know how it's going to change you. And I suppose for each one of you in the family, it was different. Um, it, yeah, it, no, and that is true. Um, yeah. Because I think when you step out uh, into the world like this, I mean, we found we would begin an adventure, like each time is new, each experience is new, each country is new. We've never been to these countries before. The people we're meeting are new. And so we really just had to have a certain amount of, of trust that, that, that things were uh, going to unfold. And, and, and in each case for us, I mean, I know everyone's circumstance is different, um, but that each time we reached out, each time we met new people, uh, we found that we either learned something new or um, had, had, a, had a positive experience. And I, and I went for people, you know, people I think oftentimes um, – they think about the things and say, well, yeah, you know, that's fine for you, but, you know, we couldn't do it. So at the end of this book, I, I did put in a section called How to Volunteer Your Way Around the World. It's not a tell-all. I mean, it does tell all about our experience and exactly what we did, even how much it costs. Um, but, how much did it cost? Uh, it cost, well, we had to take out, um, we actually took out a home equity loan, to be honest with you, um, and that's all written down in the book. We took out a home equity loan to go out and uh, – and to take this trip, but our budget for this trip was eight dollars a day per person. Eight dollars a day per person to live and eat in exotic places around the world. So now, plane tickets cost money. You got to buy plane tickets, and uh, we spent four thousand dollars a person on plane tickets. Um, but but in but in terms of the actual numbers, I mean, you can see it. You can look through it. You can run through all the numbers and see. But I will tell you, it cost less for us to volunteer our way around the world for six months than it would have cost us to stay and live in our regular lives here in America. Oh, well, that I believe. Eight dollars, I'm thinking, what, two lattes at Starbucks? I don't know, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's your day. That's your eight dollars, right? right? And also, exactly. you're living there. You're not living in two places, so you're spending your money there. You're not spending it at home. It's not like you're doubling up, right? So No, yeah, it, yeah. It, but it, but it does take you know it takes a bit of uh, it takes a bit of to break free of the gravity of your own life and the uh, you know the sort of routine and sort of the inertia of your own life it takes a bit of um, it takes a bit of doing it does take a bit of commitment and a bit of uh, action proaction to get out there and, and and kind of make it happen but once we got it in motion I mean some of these spots we planned on the road we didn't have it all figured out ahead of time 
Um, in fact, I found while I was in Thailand, I found our next stop by just typing Indian Orphanage into Google, and up came this first place, IndianOrphanage.com. That's, that's where we ended up staying the next month. So you, you have an overall plan. You're just not going to go there helter-skelter. Then you're not going to accomplish anything. As you mentioned earlier, there are certain right. places you're going to go. People are going to meet you. But then in the context of that, there's a lot of open-ended stuff that kind of flows from that once you get there. I mean, I was in the Peace Corps, and I'm not going to tell you when, but so many years ago. And, just, <laughs> and in terms of your book, I think it just it rang true because – that experience um, of, you know, living without medical attention, you know, or medical attention was, you know, the doctor was four miles, four hours away uh, in the Andes, and uh, or the food, all of those kinds of things, getting sick, but, but it changed my life forever, because when I came back to the United States, it was like, I will never complain about certain things right. that I would have, about food, not that I was a big, you know, uh, food or medical care, but it was like, I had this whole different kind of basis for perceiving my own, or for understanding my own, where I live, my own environment. I just think it's just, it's, it's such a great thing that you did. Um, well, and Catherine, imagine if you could give that gift to your children yeah. at, a, at a formative, transformative time of their lives, which really, I, what you say is 100% true. That's how we felt. It, it changes you at a fundamental level. And I, you know, I want to say, People say, well, you know, volunteering, it's a bunch of do-gooders out there taking pictures for their Facebook page to, sh to look like they did something good. And I can yeah. say, with all humility, we did not change the world. We didn't. We didn't go out and, 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 and I'm not going to come out and say, oh, if we did this amazing thing and we, we transformed the planet. No, it was the total opposite. It was the world that transformed us. And so it's almost selfish you know, to go out there and be of service because, because you will get so much more from the experience than you can give. Yep. And so um, for us anyway, that was the case. And uh, I've heard that from a lot of other people as well. Well, I want to make sure that everybody, obviously, they can, they can buy your book online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. We have like two minutes left. And so I want you just to um, mention again, because you, you talked about this launching this project as a, this orphanage project that you're doing, I guess, that you're involved in now, like the website that people can go to if they're interested or get yep, information there's about a, what there's you're a, doing? It's called neworphanage.org. Um, it's looking to find and support the best orphan projects um, worldwide. And we've launched our first project. Um, as I mentioned, it's on Indiegogo. It's called Orphan School. It's right there on the homepage if you go. It's got uh, two beautiful kids from the orphanage on the, on, on the, in, the, in the picture. Um, but we're looking to expand the orphanage school uh, over there, uh, they they're just need more space, and so we're looking to raise some money um, to do that. But that's also you can also learn if you want to learn any more about this book, you can go to my website. It's johnmarshall.com, um, and as you mentioned, people could pick it up anywhere. It's at bookstores. It, it actually launched yesterday. Uh, it was a huge uh, lifelong uh, dream come true for me. But it's out on all the Amaz uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of the online locations. You can also find it. Wide open world. Wide open world. Well, I would say. You are changing the world, maybe in different way. I guess you know you never know how you're going to do it, but it seems to me each one of you in the family is it's 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 had a rippling effect. I mean, you take your daughter for instance, who's becoming a physician who will uh, be doctors without borders or whatever it is. So you never yeah. know what's going to yeah. You it's, it's a, you change them, but it's also a game changer for you. Seems to me. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's the that's the key to remember is. We're not out there. If you do something like this, you're not the benevolent one. It's, you know, you're out there to offer and show up. That's your job. Show up and do what's asked of you. With the, with the, give your heart to this, but watch what you receive in return. Because the rewards, I believe, from this kind of work are so much, so much greater than whatever you're going to, whatever you're going to add to it. Uh, so, you know, give it a shot, I think, for for people that might be dreaming of it, maybe if they check out the book and, and, and see a way that maybe uh, it's a possibility for them to go out and do it. Terrific. It was great talking to you this morning, John, and good luck, obviously, with all the good works you're doing. Uh, John Marshall, author of Wide Open World, How Volunteering Around the Globe Changed One Family's Lives Forever, and it could do the same for you. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Caroline L. Arnold. Caroline is author of the book Small Move, Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently, which is a big job. Uh, Caroline has been a technology leader on Wall Street for more than a decade, leading software development teams as large as 500 technologists, and she has received the Wall Street and Technology Award for creating the Google IPO auction platform, and her name appears on several patents pending, and she's a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Caroline. Oh, Catherine, thank you for having me on. Okay, I just want to read a little intro here because it says 90% of resolvers annually fail at the New Year's resolutions. Most of us begin the year enthusiastically vowing to lose weight, get organized, make time for our families, or arrive on time to work. Yet just weeks into the new year, which is about right now, our willpower craters, our old routines creep back, and finally we give up on our resolutions altogether. And enter your book, Small Move, Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently. And what, what I get from your book, and I, it's really, I, it seems so simple, but boy, it seems like it would really work. We just got to get mm. out of those old resolutions that don't work and kind of reframe them in a different right. way and then we'll be able to follow through. So uh, how do we do that? Yeah, well, you know, you're right. It, it is that time of year when most people fail at their resolution. Ninety percent of people fail at them. I was one of those failures every year and I couldn't really understand, gee, how is it possible that I could get all these big things done at work and I can juggle my family and home life, but the few things I really want to do you know, for myself, for self-improvement, somehow um, my willpower gives out. And, and um, you know, I began experimenting one year. I decided to make a different resolution than I had made before because I thought the problem was maybe that I was always um, resolving to lose weight and exercise more, and that was just so hard. I should just try something different. And I tried to be organized. And really, if you sort of listen to the language we use when we – when we make resolutions, we generally pledge to be someone else, to be on time, to be organized, to be thin by summer. You know, All of these things are, are, are really, really closer to wishes than they are to plans of action. And in that particular year, I made the resolution to be organized, and I failed at that one too. And at that point, yeah, you know, I went out and I got all of the organizers, desk organizers. I color-coded files. I caught up on everything. I high-fived myself for having finally achieved a New Year's resolution, and two months later it looked as bad as it had before I had begun. And so I really took a step back then, and I realized that it wasn't just that it was hard to lose weight or to get fit. It was, it's hard to change 
And if I wasn't going to be successful in sort of a wholesale change, waking up the next day and being an organized person, right, what was one change I could make that I could succeed at? And I ended up really sort of reverse engineering my behavior around organization, isolating sort of, if you will, sort of one behavioral bug in my routine, because we're all running on routines, and I, I nailed it. And that was really just to keep all my notes in one notebook. It sounds so modest, like such a modest goal, but I had notes everywhere. I had notes in different notebooks on pads. I had notes at home. I had notes in my handbag. And forcing myself to keep that one behavioral change and just focusing all my willpower on that, I was able to break through. And what felt you know, as very sort of awkward behavior when I first started practicing, it became second nature. Um, And I thought, one day I realized, gee, I'm more organized because of this. I took that same sort of model and I decided to try a weight loss one. And I made one very limited resolution, which was never to eat a conference room cookie again. I didn't say I would never eat cookies again. I didn't say I would never eat in a conference room cookie, but we're, uh, uh, in a conference room again. But I said, I'm not going to eat those cookies that just appear in the conference room unbidden and that I end up eating two or three of. And I succeeded at that. And so bit by bit, I developed a system for sort of always isolating the next behavioral change, channeling my willpower against it, and then moving on. And I was able to make progress sort of in every area doing that. How much weight did you lose? <laughs> I've lost 22 pounds. I'm the fittest I've ever been. Um, I didn't count a single calorie to do it um, because I basically isolated it to behavioral change. So, for instance, I said, okay, I'm not going to eat while I make dinner. Your previous guest was talking about making dinner. I would come home. I'd be hungry. I'd be making dinner, and I'd have a glass of wine. I'd eat a piece of French bread. You know, I might sample things as I go along. And then by the time I sat down to eat dinner, I had really probably already consumed you know, quite a few calories, and then I ate the whole meal anyway. So that's an easy change to make, right? Some people eat when they're cleaning up dinner. You know, they're, they're clearing plates and they see food they worked hard at or something, and they don't want to go to waste, and they, they eat there. Some people eat in the car going home. You know, they get the frappuccino for the car going home. So, you know, one of them was not to eat while making dinner. At a certain point, I stopped eating after uh, – eating after dinner. I ate what I was going to eat, even though I was going to have dessert. I had that, and then I was done. One had to do with eating a better breakfast, eating the breakfast earlier. And I just made these behavioral changes that I could sustain for a lifetime. That's really the goal. You know, can you sustain it for a lifetime? The first rule of a micro-resolution is don't make resolutions you can't keep. If you don't think you can do it forever most of the time, then don't say you're going to do it. And I think people say, well, you know, i got to just change everything. Yeah, but can you change one thing? and succeed with it, it's amazing how transformative these changes are. I've made changes in relationships, everything, using this well, method. And I want to go on to that, but I'm thinking about the weight thing. That, that It's such a great idea, and it sounds, like you say, it sounds so simple, but it's really, you're putting limits. Are you talking about the cookie thing, not eating at a meeting, mm. or maybe never eating, You could you say, and I'm never going to eat while I'm in my car. I'm not saying I'm never going to eat another yes. cookie or I, whatever I'm going to eat. I'll continue to eat, but I'm placing limits or restrictions on where I'm going to do that eating. That you can do. Yeah. And one of mine is not to eat standing up because I would eat in line. You know, I'd be there with my muffin. By the time I got to pay for it, I'd eaten it. I hadn't even registered that I'd eaten it. You know, and I have an exception. If I'm at a cocktail party, I'm going to have something to eat standing up. But I, I sit down to eat. I make sure I know that I'm eating. I, tr- I try to – another one of mine was, you know, my first resolution was one – my, one of my resolutions, the first way I framed it, you spoke about framing earlier, was to eat slowly. Well, it's very kind of to chew slowly. That's very sort of unattractive, you know. And I knew I ate very fast. I was done before anybody else. And, you know, then I would be eating out of the bread basket or whatever. And, but I reframe that to dine leisurely and savor my food and drink. You know, who wouldn't want to do that? So, you know, the focus is on pleasure, enjoying food, making the enjoyment last, savoring. And that had a huge effect on me just personally because I tend to rush at everything I do. And so by changing that one behavior and isolating it, I start to think about all the situations in which I sort of deprive myself of pleasure just by rushing out of habit. Well, you're this a very one... driven, obviously, and focused and successful person. And so, you know, that I guess you call the alpha woman. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm labeling it that. But uh, so you've 
but you've taken this whole in very well you started out well di- I don't want to use the word dieting but losing weight mm. um Let's take another category because um, I think one of the things, and you talked about becoming more organized. What mm. about, and this is another one that you mentioned in the book, but saving money because it seems to be that's a huge problem today with most Americans. Nobody's it's saving money. It's a real topic of, you know, what are you going to do when you retire, that kind of stuff. So, well, you're at Goldman Sachs, so you're the perfect person to ask besides <laughs> that. So, <laughs> well, we, you know. Yeah. We all we all have to live within our means, right? And, you know, saving money, um, you know, we waste money out of habit. So basically, the thing is you're on a kind of autopilot all day, right? Most of your life is managed by autopilot. Like when you get up, you don't have to think about how to tie your shoes. You don't have to think about locking the door. You can find your way to the bus stop with nary a conscious thought, right? When you try to change something about your life, um, you're shaking up that autopilot. And that autopilot is very efficient. It leaves, you know, a certain part of your mind free for big problem solving and things like that. And willpower, you know, though we berate ourselves um, for, for saying, oh, you know, I just didn't have enough willpower, as if it's a character flaw. Willpower is a limited mental resource. It's part of a mental resource pool, which includes active decision, you know, active initiative and decision-making. That's all one mental resource pool. And the more, you know, decisions you make all day, uh, an active initiative you show and willpower you draw on, the faster you draw down all those things. So autopilot is a great thing because it keeps you from drawing on that very limited store of decision-making and active initiative. But when you decide to change something about yourself, like your spending habits, you are trying to make conscious, something that's been unconscious before. It could be you spend money when you're out with a particular friend shopping. It could be that at the end of a day when you're depleted from decision-making and you wander into the mall, you end up with a lot of purchases or what is more common now and was common with me, shopping on the internet late at night. Tired. Yes. End of the day, right? Made a lot of decisions, showed a lot of active initiative that tamped down your willpower. Uh, and so then you make these impulse purchases. Sometimes I have a box arrive. I didn't even know what I could hardly remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I remember, right? Yeah. So for me, one change I made was not getting on, not allow myself to do personal shopping on the internet after 10 o'clock at night. If I have to order light bulbs, that's one thing, but I'm not going to browse around, right? Um, another one for me, as funny as it sounds, is not to pay an ATM fee. You know, because I, you know, you say, okay, I'm picking out $100 and it costs $3 to take it out. You think, well, it's $3, I don't have much time. But it's 3%. It's 3% on $100. 3% after tax, right? Mm-hmm. If you got a 3% tax out, you wouldn't be happy. And yet many people, you know, just withdraw from the most convenient. Again, it's personal. It's very personal to your own behavior. You have to sort of look at your own routine. A lot of people spend when they're in situations where, you know, the, the, the salesperson can make you feel pressured to spend more money. Um, you know, I certainly had that sometimes, you know, and, and I practice saying, oh, that's more than I want to spend today. I actually practice when, when I'm sort of encouraged to sort of get upsell to say, you know, that's more than I want to spend today. And I say it right away. And that helps the salesperson. But I had to practice doing it because I felt, you know, like many people feel that, oh, well, in this shop, most people spend more money than I'm willing to spend. And instead, just establishing that. Or so Caroline, so every time you go shopping, let's say, you will say that. That's you that's sort of the initial thing that you say to the salesperson and then you no, go only from there. if they show I mean, me something more. You know when you have that moment where you're looking at something and then they show you something and you look at the tag, let's say, and it's way more than you meant to spend. You know, I think in the past sometimes I would try it on anyway, you know. I would, but I, 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 now I say, or oh, I'm looking for a gift and I'm looking at, let's say, one piece of jewelry and they show you something else that's much more expensive. I just say, that's more than I want to spend today. I said it over Christmas when I went to get, you know, some caviar. I was looking at the American caviar. They showed me some more. You know, I say, you know, oh, no, that's more than I want to spend today. But I had to practice saying it. And, and so, again, it comes from, it's very important, it comes from observing your own behavioral routine and under what circumstances you overspend. You know, when are you tempted? You're at budget, but somebody asks you to go out and do something. You know, what do you do to compensate for that? And all of us have, you know, the, or, or we shop at the store that's nearest when we know if we went a few blocks further, um, we would get a better deal. So it, it, it's really sort of, again, looking at, rather than just making the same resolution that everyone in the country makes to spend less, and we're all different people, make a specific resolution about a situation in which you spend too much and sort of 
reform your autopilot around that one area and then move on to another one. And you'll you end up wasting less money. You have to do a little bit more work when you do this, because I think some of these New Year, I, most of the New Year's resolutions things, they tell you, just write a list or whatever of what you, you, know, you want to lose weight, you want to save money. So what you're saying is you really have to, it, it's tailor-made to who you are and what your habits are. You really should sit down and spend time deciding and really taking a look at what your habits are, where you spend your money, how, what you're, I mean, as simple as you're saying, that's too much, you know, I don't, want to spend that much money or whatever it is, but you really have to um, take a little time to kind of evaluate your own habits. Is that, isn't that part right. of it? Yeah. And what, yeah, what are the triggers? So like if we, yeah. you know, let's take organization again or productivity. So one thing that would happen to me, and I should emphasize, um, or let's take what, the book is full of other people's stories. So a lot of people began practicing this method, you know, um, because I was I was doing it, I was sharing results. Other people started doing it, and there are a lot of great, great and funny stories in the book about it. But like, let's take um, there was one story in the book about a person who was passed over for promotion at work and was told that it was because she was a bit, you know, she she had a bit too much of a negative attitude for this leadership position, and this person thought that was very unfair. Um, but when she thought about it. Uh, and that she complained, you know, that she did a lot of complaining at work. And she thought it was unfair because everybody complained, she thought. And she, but she decided, she had been doing this micro-resolution thing in other areas, but so she just made, decided to make a micro-resolution in this area and sort of test her own hypothesis. And she made a very interesting resolution, which was not to be the first to complain at work, not to be the first. So the very first, she didn't say again, I'm never going to complain again, because if you're a complainer, you probably complain about everything. But she said, I won't be the first. The next day, there was a management decision was announced that she thought would cause a lot of complaining, and she sat back and waited for someone else to complain, and nobody else complained. And she realized in that moment, from that one alteration of behavior, that without realizing it, she was sort of fostering that kind of complaint. And so, you know, again, whatever, anything in relationships comes down, you know, relationships you have with people come down to established patterns. I, I guarantee you, if, you, if you're used to saying, I told you so, if you were to change your behavior with your partner, let's say, not to say I told you so when you proved right or all the variations of that, that would be a game changer, right? right. And it would take willpower and mindfulness and attention to catch yourself. And it would probably affect many other areas of your life too. I think the thing I've found is, Catherine, there's no such thing as an insignificant behavioral change that you sustain. You make a permanent change in your response to something, whether it's a cue to, you know, scream at your kid, you know, a cue to defend yourself at work, a cue to spend more to feel like you belong in a certain situation, a cue to eat more. If you master one of those cues and reform your autopilot, it has a profound effect. Um, one of mine was just to hang up my coat when I came home. Um, I had clothes on chairs in my room. You know, I'd, in the weekend, I would have to hang all these things up that I hadn't handled during the week. And the, the, only my first one was just to tell myself when I came home with my coat, it's really just as fast to hang it up. The rest took care of itself. Once I had that habit of hanging up the coat, it really bothered me to see things on chairs because it wasn't any more part of what I was used to seeing. And and it became a pattern. It's really just as fast to hang up clothes when I take them off. It's really just as fast to file this immediately than to let it sit in a pile on the desk. And I don't want to give the impression that everything in my life is handled because it isn't. But it's amazing how when you make a shift, it ripples through other things. Yeah, the ripple effect is very powerful, very strong. It's almost like when you decide to, if one decides, you want to redecorate and you just maybe mm. buy a new chair, suddenly everything else in the room looks shabby. that didn't look shabby before, but it does in contrast with the new chair. Um, so changing one thing does change everything. You're right. It doesn't have to be a big thing. So give us some more examples because I know people like to hear example. I mean, you've given some of your own personal, which is great, but a couple more like in the book, a personal, like a personal relationship, uh, not at work, but relationship with your partner. Or, um, okay. Yeah. So um, I thought it was very interesting that the discussion of cooking in the kitchen that I heard at the tail end of the uh -huh. other discussion. One of mine was, uh, you know, I had not made a, at a certain point, I, you know, I'd come home from work. I'd be I'm doing my job all day. I'd come home. I'd make dinner, which I think is very important to have a family meal. And 
you know, I'd be kind of stressed out to get this meal going and everything. And and my husband would come in and say, you know, he left the light on in the basement, you know, <laughs> this morning. And I'd, be, I'd feel like this load of resentment, you know. And But I didn't express resentment. What I said is, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And then I would launch into a long explanation of how it was that I managed to leave the house without turning the light off in the basement, which was really kind of a... I was doing this, I was doing that. It was really kind of a guilt-trippy thing when I analyzed it. You know, I was really trying to make him feel bad for bringing it up. And then he would go kind of quiet, and then the whole evening would have sort of a sour edge. And I'd been doing this micro-resolution thing in a lot of areas, but I hadn't done a relationship one. And it occurred to me when this happened, gee, what would happen if I just said, oh, when he told me, or got it? You know, I was treating it as a gotcha, you know, and not a piece of information. It's kind of like, you didn't get this right. And, you know, boy, what a change. I learned a lot just about who I am and making that change. So when it happened again, something like that happened, I said, okay, and I just went on. And I, because I didn't, and my resolution rule is don't apologize when you don't mean it. I didn't mean it, so I didn't say it. I just acknowledged it. And then the evening went fine. And the funniest thing happened, my husband's behavior changed because he would sort of then, since I wasn't sucking all the air out of the room with my lengthy explanations about how a perfect person like me could have come to have left the light on in the basement, my husband then would say, you know, it's not a big deal, but I thought you'd want to know about it. He filled the gap, right? And so we always try to change the other person, but the other person, you have better luck changing that person if you change your response to that person, I discovered. And this carried through in work. You know, if I get feedback at work, that's what we call it now, feedback. It's not criticism. It's developmental feedback. You know, I'm much more likely just to acknowledge it. If, even if I don't think it's fair, I say, oh, I'm, I'm glad you told me that. Um, I'm going to think about that. Or I might agree right away. But what I don't do is explain why the criticism isn't valid or, you know. And, and so these are the things. And you get to know yourself so much better. And because you're only channeling your willpower against a couple of narrow targets at a time, do two of them at a time that can be in different areas, and you keep them for four to six weeks at a time until you can establish a pattern, and then you go on to another two, that's 20 behavioral changes or more you could make in a single year. That's huge. That is, base, I mean, those two, I mean, that, that, the, the examples, and this is the, it's almost, we have about a minute left, actually. Mm. I mean, that, those are perfect examples of uh, small move, big change. And, right. Uh, but, but, Carol, and your website, because we, we do have to say goodbye, but uh, carolinearnold.com, that's the website we can go to. Yeah, I think it's probably, it's Caroline L. Arnold or smallmovebigchange.com gets you there. But okay. you will need Caroline L. Arnold. I'm on Twitter at Caroline L. Arnold. I'm on Facebook at Small Move Big Change, um, and the book is Small Move Big Change, Using Micro-Resolutions to Transform Your Life Permanently, um, and you can get it through Amazon or any of the local book outlets. Uh, that's fantastic, and I am ready to get off and start mm-hmm. making some of these changes, suggestions. They're great. Um, They're a lot the of fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, a lot of fun, easy to do, and it does, I mean, you can make big changes with these small moves. Right. Um, anyway, have a great day, and um, thanks so much for being on the show. And thank you for having me. Take care. We're, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.CatherineZox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 